Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 401 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We will be breaking down everything that has happened over the last week in NXT and AEW. Not only that, this episode will serve as your 2023 NXT Vengeance Day Ultimate Preview as we break down every match on that card with predictions and of course a pre-show expectation grade for Vengeance Day. You do not want to miss any of that on today's episode. As always, we kick off this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast with a reminder that this show is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave those five-star ratings on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review, and if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We do episode drops, news analysis highlights all week long with Vengeance Day being this week when we will also have pre and post show polls where you can give us your expectation grades and your final grades for the first NXT event outside of Orlando since Stand and Deliver last year, just the second since the start of the COVID pandemic all those years ago. I did forget to mention on Tuesday's WWE show, a banger episode, if I do say so myself, also the 400th episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. I did forget to mention we will be doing a Vengeance Day instant analysis Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. What we will not be doing, however, is an NXT Vengeance Day pre-show on Twitter spaces. We do not find them to be that well attended when it comes to NXT events, especially uh, given they're on Saturday nights even more frequently than WWE ones are. So because of that, the Silver King is just going to save his energy and make sure that we absolutely nail that instant analysis. Now, on today's show, of course, we're going to be talking NXT and AEW because NXT is the show with the ultimate preview. We always save that for the end of the episode, which means we're going to kick things off with AEW and then move over to NXT before we get to the NXT Vengeance Day ultimate preview. A reminder, as always, or perhaps for the first time, if you are listening to this podcast as a new getting overhead, we will have timestamps in the episode description. So all you need to do if you want to bounce around or if you happen to be listening to the show right before NXT Vengeance Day, hit the episode description Find the timestamp you're looking for and jump to it. But as always, I do hope you listen to the entire show, particularly because these Thursday episodes are generally short. Anyway, as I noted, let's kick things off with AEW, where we're going to talk about Dynamite and Rampage all together. Straight off the top, let me just point this out. The match quality that AEW has presented the last three weeks in particular has just been outstanding, like truly outstanding. We're getting multiple four-star matches per Dynamite and even some pretty decent bouts on Rampage as well. As I said last week, the storylines are lacking in a lot of areas. There's some good stuff, some nonsensical stuff, and some truly boring stuff. But they are gearing up for Revolution, 
And it is my expectation that things are going to start shaking out and becoming a little bit more organic in the next week or two. Nevertheless, in terms of a in-ring entertainment standpoint, AEW has absolutely been delivering for the better part of the last month. And really, ever since the last pay-per-view, they've just been putting on fantastic TV matches. So let's get into Dynamite and Rampage. Starting with Rampage, we had Hangman Page against Wheeler Yuta. Page had a great avalanche Death Valley driver. Yuta then went on a run that included a release German suplex at ringside where Hangman legitimately landed on the side of his head and neck. It was scary, for sure. Uh, Wheeler then followed with a splash outside, but Hangman got knees up on a repeat attempt inside. Yuta countered Buckshot Lariat basically into like an Olympic slam and hit his splash for a false finish. Hangman countered into a buckshot, but chose not to go for the fall, instead lifting Yuta for Death Rider and the win. Banger match, bell to bell. Seriously scary spot outside. I liked how Hangman kind of went into Mox's bag of tricks to use his finisher, and it actually alluded to something that we would get on Dynamite, which made a lot of sense and was pretty cool as well. So let's move to that scheduled match on Dynamite. Hangman against John Moxley. Mox attacked during Page's entrance. They fought outside for a while before the bell. Mox wrapped a chair around Hangman's ankle, and he was going to jump off the apron when the referee stopped him for no reason whatsoever. So Page took the chair and threw it at Mox's head, and that was basically just an excuse for Mox to blade while he was selling it, all, by the way, before the bell. So usually we say, hey, how many minutes into a match does it take until Mox blades? In this case, it was like negative two minutes because he did it before the bell even rang. After commercial, Mox basically hit an avalanche Death Rider that was just called a front chancery suplex by Excalibur. Page blocked Death Rider, so Mox moved into an armbar. Hangman missed a moonsault outside and ate a lariat, but came up with a pop-up powerbomb through the timekeeper's table. Mox beat a count at 9.9 and immediately ate Deadeye. Page then hit a small package driver, which I don't really think I've ever seen before. He hit the driver and then immediately put it into the small package. Really cool. Uh, Mox countered Buckshot Lariat, but Hangman countered Death Rider into a Tombstone Pile Driver, then caught Mox blind with the Buckshot Lariat for a 2.9 false finish. He moved out of the pinfall into Mox's Bulldog Choke, but Mox countered it by grabbing Hangman's head and rolling him into a trap pinfall for the 1-2-3. Commentary here did a really good job explaining, of course Mox is going to have a counter for his own finisher, and given Hangman used Death Rider in the match on Rampage, they didn't say this on commentary, but Mox probably knew something like this was coming. Hangman was feeling himself. You know, he already kicked out of the buckshot, so clearly he was going to try one of his own moves. After the bell, Hangman got close to Mox, so Wheeler and Claudio Castanoli came down. Mox tried to get past them to push Page, and they just kept, like, jawing at each other after the bell, flicking each other off. I think they were, like, Eight total middle fingers uh, before the entire thing ended. So the match was stellar. Early blading, you know, guys, for me, it's an eye roll every time, but it's a mock signature at this point. I did like how Paige also in the match used some of Seth Rollins' moves kind of as taunts to mocks. My expectation was this was going to be a time limit draw leading into a fourth match at Revolution. Instead, we're just going to get a fourth match because Hangman's going to say, hey, mocks lucked out with this victory. And really, he's never beaten me because the first time had to get stopped due to a concussion. So I have a win over him, and he doesn't really have a win over me. And that's fine. My only issue really with the match was Mox kicking out of the buckshot lariat coming out of a tombstone. That is way too much given they were doing a happenstance finish anyway. Save something like that 
for Revolution. Allow that to enhance the match. When Mox now kicks out of the buckshot at Revolution, it's going to be an eye roll because he already did it. So, you know, why give it all away? That's my take. The truth is, this feud would actually be perfect for an Iron Man stipulation, given they have three battles, the real concussion, the storyline concussion, and now the skin of the teeth win for Mox. The problem is, of course, Iron Man is somewhat unnecessarily being used for MJF and Brian Danielson. So AEW is going to have to figure out something else here. They could do a Texas death match, which in my opinion for AEW has been very overused. It seems like we get two or three of them a year at this point. The booking, even though I think you all know, I don't like it. Uh, I don't like this stipulation for matches. The right booking probably is last man standing. But this was as good of a team via match as you could really expect. I went 4.5 stars and an A. On Dynamite, Konosuke Takeshka fought Brian Cage. Takeshka ate a buckle bomb, but countered into a Liger bomb for a near fall. He added two brain busters, an avalanche brain buster, and then a lifted knee and got the win. I believe this is his most notable win in AEW thus far, and that's great for him to get a victory moment given how many losses that he's taken, even though all of those L's pretty much are against some of the top wrestlers in the world in AEW. Solid match, bell to bell, and a really good spot for Takeshka here. On Dynamite, Danielson fought Timothy Thatcher. This was heavily technical as expected given Danielson was selling the shoulder and given Thatcher's in-ring style. Brian kicked Thatcher as much as he could and hit him with hammer elbows. Thatcher backed Danielson into the referee in the corner, leading MJF down with the Dynamite Diamond Ring looking to take advantage. Instead of that happening, Takeshka attacked him out of the crowd, staved off the interference, Thatcher locked in the Fujiwara armbar. Brian escaped and hit the psycho knee and got the win. MJF and Takeshka continued battling backstage before eventually getting separated. And then Renee Paquette came in and just was like, hey, Takeshka, uh, you're getting an eliminator match against MJF next week. Tony Khan said so. So the Danielson match was another banger here. Uh, and Thatcher made total sense as the opponent, as we discussed last week. Four stars, A- minus for the action. Doing the MJF storyline within it, took away a little from Brian overcoming his latest obstacle, which is really what the storyline is, but it did result in a rare MJF TV match, which is badly needed when you're a world champion in a company and you never wrestle. I mean, MJF never wrestled even before he was strapped up. Plus, this is going to be a banger in its own right. MJF's a great wrestler. Takeshko's a great wrestler. We're going to have an awesome match. So overall, it's fine booking. And it probably will be a ratings grabber next week. At least that's my assumption. Uh, Roosh was later announced as Brian's next opponent for Dynamite next week. After the fact, MJF presented a briefcase of cash to him and promised five more if he beats Danielson. It was kind of strange that this happened after the announcement when it's MJF who is setting up the opponents, but Roosh seemed to get booked in the match separately. Also, the amount of money in the briefcase, it was comical how much it was like it was beyond the realm of legitimacy for a briefcase with that much cash to be offered, not just once, but with five more coming after it. If, uh, you know, Roosh was to actually beat Brian, this is simple stuff to me that needs to be executed better after three or four years of AEW existing. That's just how I look into it. Uh, on Dynamite, we also had a TNT title match, Darby Allen against Samoa Joe, no holds barred. This was the main event. Joe pulled a table out from under the ring with Darby immediately hitting his tope suicida into it. The side of the table like careened off Joe's face, 
legitimately busting him open in a moment that kind of seemed to confuse him. He was, I mean, maybe he was just selling because it was unexpected blood, so he felt like he really needed to sell it. But given his concussion history, he really should have been checked out there, and he wasn't, which was a disappointment. Uh, they fought deep into the crowd. Joe hit his Uranagi out of the corner, leaned a table against the barricade, and literally chucked Darby out of the ring with reckless abandon. Really wild spot if you think about it. Joe then set up two chairs and basically did a sidewalk slam into the top of them. He tried a power bomb into the base of the chairs, but Darby threw powder into his eyes, I guess from out of his pocket or something, and then countered with a code red before hitting a flip over stunner. Then he tried but failed to put on a hoodie covered in thumbtacks because he couldn't find the arms before hitting a coffin drop for a false finish. He then took out a box cutter and snapped all the strings holding the canvas down so he could expose the boards underneath. It felt like it took an hour for him to get these boards exposed. When he went back to Joe finally, he missed a tope and flew right into that table I mentioned that was leaning on the barricade. Joe then powerbombed Darby into the thumbtack sweater, but Darby thumbed Joe's eyes and hit three chair shots. Joe then used the referee to knock Darby off the ropes, and he hit an avalanche muscle buster off the second rope into the exposed wood to become TNT champion a second time. 15 seconds after the bell, Wardlow returned with a new entrance. He tackled Joe, and then Joe eventually escaped a powerbomb attempt. Wardlow beat up six security guards, and Dynamite ended. So the question here is, do I start with the positives or the negatives? Let's start with the positives. Excellent wrestling when we got it. It was hot from bell to bell, even action both ways, a tremendous finish that protected Darby really as much as possible in a loss. The negatives, uh, Joe taking that awful shot to the face, Darby taking six months to get the ring prepared for the finish, and Wardlow returning 15 seconds after a title change, almost negating the impact of the victory. Oh, and Darby also getting a 28-day title reign, I guess for the purpose of throwing a bunch of high-quality matches on TV while Wardlow couldn't be there, wasn't there, needed time off, whatever the case. This is the third time in a 12-month span that AEW has gone back and forth hot potato style with the title. They did it with Cody Rhodes and Sammy Guevara. Then they did it with Sammy and Scorpio Sky. And those were really close to each other in like January, February, March, and April. And now here we are doing Wardlow, Joe, Darby, Joe, and probably Wardlow getting it back at Revolution after what would be probably a four or five week reign for Joe. Now, all that said, Darby put on some bangers over these last four weeks as champion. And again, even in this booking, he had an easily excused loss. He basically cost himself the title by going too far and wasting too much time. I went four stars in an A-. minus. I thought it was a great main event. Two really amazing matches on this show. And Takeshka had a damn good match as well. So, you know, just again, top quality wrestling here. But when it comes to the storytelling aspect of it, it's, it's just lacking a little bit. On Rampage, we had a women's eliminator match, Jamie Hayter against Emi Sakura in a non-title. This was the main event of that show. Sakura hit a great double underhook delayed vertical backbreaker. Hayter ran the ropes with a sliding lariat for a near fall. Sakura came back with a tiger driver that she released early. Hayter answered with a lariat. Then Sakura countered a ripcord into a backdrop driver onto Hayter's neck. The champion immediately responded with a lariat and Haterade for the win. Again, another really good match, bell to bell. It's going to get overrated because the moves were awesome, but there was little selling. 
almost zero match story, 3.75 stars B plus for a really solid main event for Rampage. I think you guys know who are listening to the show. I tr- I've really tried to stop grading TV matches, but when they stick out, I'm going to point them out. And again, these AEW matches, I think three or four that I've already graded here, they really stuck out as high quality matches. And I really grade them just so that you know, hey, if I skipped this over, it's really a good reason to go back and watch it. Silver King thinks it's worth us watching. Now you may disagree ultimately, but at least you'll watch it. That's my goal. Uh, On Rampage, Britt Baker taunted Ruby Soho backstage, saying she has respect for her, but it's time to pick a side in the ongoing Originals versus Outsiders battle. On Dynamite, the Bunny scheduled a talk with Hater present so that she could challenge her to an Eliminator match. Why? Literally no reason whatsoever. She just wanted to challenge her. The Bunny is 0-3 on TV over the last year. And she's only had one match on Dynamite or Rampage since March 2022, so 10 months. It's really tough to do like a worse storyline excuse for a title match or an eliminator match than what WWE is doing right now with Charlotte Flair and Sonya Deville. But somehow, AEW has succeeded. As this concluded, Soraya and Tony Storm were shown attacking Baker in the parking lot, saying, we run AEW. Baker later said she was fine. Ruby checked on her. Baker acted sarcastic, saying they were her girls because she's known them longer. This is the same person in Britt Baker who was asking Ruby to join their side five days earlier. Now she's assuming that Ruby was with them because she didn't happen to be in the parking lot to help her. Odd. Uh, Now, granted, she was just attacked and probably angry, but give me a break. Uh, Soho clearly is going to be the fulcrum on which this storyline is going to turn. That makes sense. Perhaps another woman gets involved. It's a little strange Hikaru Shida has disappeared from this, given she was part of it initially. It's completely uninspired, but look, maybe it's going to work out in the end with something entertaining. On Rampage, Top Flight challenged the Elite, saying AR Fox would be their third. This was expected given they won that battle royal. It was nothing as a promo. On Dynamite, the Elite accepted while on a basketball court, because apparently that theme is still continuing. After that, Stokely Hathaway's crew came up challenging for a six-man match on Rampage that the Elite accepted. So they've been away due to a visa issue for Kenny Omega, and that has now been resolved, which is why he was on TV. So it makes sense now that they're back, short road, Uh, to the next pay-per-view, get them back in the fold as soon as possible, throw a couple matches on TV, even if both matches are relative shrugs in terms of competitiveness. On Rampage, Ricky Starks and Action Andretti wanted another shot at Jericho Appreciation Society. On Dynamite, JAS said that Starks could get Chris Jericho fourth if he went through a gauntlet featuring the other three of them or three of the other four of them. That's good booking for Starks to look strong before... I presume losing to Jericho, which will ultimately lead to probably a stipulation match at Revolution. But I continue to contend JAS has just jumped the shark for me, at least for the most part. It's frustrating. Sometimes what they end up doing in the ring works, but overall, I'm just really tired of them. On Dynamite, the acclaimed fought a couple jobbers in a non-title match. Tony Schiavone on commentary was amazed that human beings can make scissor gestures with their hands. I am not exaggerating. He literally said that. The jobbers then scissored, mocking Acclaimed. Then Acclaimed hits Shiver Me Chimbers. Billy Gunn jumped into the ring to scissor right in the middle of the match. The Acclaimed then hit the arrival and Mike dropped for the win. I think you all know I enjoy squash matches to establish wrestlers. And there's one with Powerhouse Hobbs later that I'm going to praise because he's the exact type of person who can benefit from a squash match. But putting the tag team champions 
in a match like this, just so they can get their shit in, was an absolute fucking waste of time. Zero point zero. So after this happened, Gun Club entered, challenging for the titles for, I don't know, the fourth or fifth time, and this time they demanded an answer. The acclaimed answered by getting the rest of their shit in, all their gimmicks, asking a booing crowd, hey, should we give them a shot? Obviously the crowd said no, so they said no. The four guys then started shoving each other. Billy scoffed, saying he's done with the bullshit, and he walked away. The guns noted it was their father turning his back on them once again. He paused but kept walking. So they instigated him about his former drug use, which brought him back into the ring. Billy got in their face, but his mic cut out. Really bad timing, right? As he was like cutting the meaty part of his promo. So he got a new one, and he tore down his sons before accepting the title match. To the acclaim's complete surprise, the guns smiled and winked at the champions before leaving. Look, I'm just done with this whole feud. Billy was breaking up fights when they were all together. Now he's breaking up fights when they're apart from each other. But his sons, he turned his back on his sons. So why does he care if acclaimed get into it with them? Like, why is he trying to stop them from fighting? It doesn't make any sense. He's the one that kind of set this entire thing into motion to some degree. I mean, I know, I know the guns did really more than Billy did. But still, like, he he chose his side. He could have been with his sons this entire time. He's not. He's with the acclaimed. So, look, I'm done with the feud. The post-match was fine. This would be a little bit interesting if Billy turned on acclaimed with the guns playing them and then taking the titles off of acclaimed. That's at least something that would get my attention. But I just don't see Tony Khan doing it, nor do I see him putting the titles on the guns, nor do I think it would be the right move given acclaimed is so hot. But if that's not the booking, then again, this is just a shrug for me. At least doing that would be interesting, even if I don't agree with it. On Dynamite, the TBS Championship was on the line. Jade Cargill against Red Velvet on Rampage. Velvet and Kara Hogan talk shit to Jade and Lila Gray, promising to end Jade's winning streak. Total eye roll of a segment. This was in the standard spot, went to commercial after 90 seconds. Jade pressed Velvet outside and walked up the steps like with her body, dumping her into the ring. Kiera threw Layla into the steps and got ejected, which distracted Jade. Velvet caught her with a roundhouse kick. The referee was late on a count that wound up as two. Cargill then lifted Velvet off the canvas and hit Jaded for the win. Jade then hugged her daughter after improving to 50-0. Her strength remains impressive, but she's usually showcasing it against women who are legitimately half her size. The match was nothing. She is ice cold as far as I'm concerned, going absolutely nowhere. And this baddie storyline, which really probably could have been something, it was absolutely botched. On Dynamite, Jungle Boy said Jungle Hook is done and he's ready to be a singles champion. I could have seen him feuding with Darby for the TNT title, but now that Samoa Joe has it and it seems like Wardlow's going to take it from him, I don't really see where Jungle Boy fits into the entire thing. On Rampage, Eddie Kingston said he understands the House of Black way now and is ready to go home and join them if they'll accept him. Certainly seemed like a ploy. The entire storyline, again, boring as sin for me and relatively nonsensical the way it's been presented. On Rampage, Best Friends and Danhausen fought Jay Lethal, Jeff Jarrett, and Satnam Singh. Sanjay Dutt ate an orange punch at ringside. Singh was injured by Danhausen, avoiding his offense. The referee then stole a guitar away from Danhausen with Jarrett, hitting him blind with the Golden Globe before Singh put a foot on his chest for the win. I could not have given any less of a shit about this match. And the fact that a Golden Globe cheat spot needs to be utilized for Satnam Singh to beat 
Danhausen. I mean, it is mind boggling. Beyond that, for Singh to be on TV this much and actually be in a match and not wrestle and have zero wrestling ability to this point, you want to talk about mind boggling? That's mind boggling. It's crazy. On Rampage, Powerhouse Hobbs fought Tony Mudd, a jobber. Hobbs got some new black and gold ring gear. He murdered the dude with a torture rack slam in a squash. He looked solid. This is how you do a squash match. Really nothing else to it. On Rampage, Dustin Rhodes backstage said it's been a terrible month for him. Swerve Strickland came up talking shit, threatening to add Dustin to his list. He tried to goad him into fighting by saying Cody ain't shit and then mentioning his father. So they were supposed to have a match. On Dynamite, Swerve said apparently Dustin won't be on Rampage so that he's just going to fight another second generation talent, Brian Pillman Jr. With really no connection between that but other than he's another second generation talent. I can't do anything but shake my head at this entire thing. Why exactly does Swerve give a shit about second generation guys? There was only going to be so much rub that he was going to get from Dustin these days, but at least there's some level of rub from him beating him. Pillman is worthless as a competitor to him. Swerve has been ice cold with mogul affiliates as they wait for Keith Lee to come back ahead of the pay-per-view. This did not help one iota. I'm actually kind of... Shocked that Keith Lee has been away this long from a cinder block shot to the chest. I mean, it was a gnarly shot, but the segment was so bad when that happened. You'd think they'd want him back early so they have enough time to actually build a worthy storyline for the pay-per-view. By the way, the affiliates also look fucking terrible. There's negative heat on them. Just none of this at all is working. That is one big pile of shit. So as I said, Dynamite, unquestionably great wrestling. It's been multiple weeks of great wrestling. And there are a couple storylines, Hangman and Mox, that have my interest. But overall, top to bottom, a lot of what's happening on the show is just really frustrating from a storytelling standpoint. And when you're trying to just use high-quality wrestling to almost put storylines second when it comes to professional wrestling, to me, that's not exactly how a product should be presented to a larger audience. I know AEW's fan base is drastically different than the WWE main roster fan base and really even the NXT fan base, but they still want substantial storylines mixed in with the matches, the high-quality matches they're getting. And yes, they're doing a storyline with MJF and Brian Danielson. It is immensely repetitive. The only fresh thing is Takeshka and MJF out of the entire storyline. Mox and Paige... It's good, no doubt. There's some hiccups within it. As long as they land the plane there, that'll be really solid. And even the Outsiders and AEW Originals deal for the women, it's totally derivative. I'm not saying that there's notably original wrestling storylines usually in AEW or even WWE, but this one is just like, man, how similar are you going to get to things that have been done previously? So it's been a frustration overall with AEW storytelling, but again, really high quality matches. And because of that, still a really good reason, of course, to watch the product. So with that, let's move over to NXT. First, we're going to talk about a number of things that happened on Tuesday night's television show, and then we will wrap up this podcast with the NXT Vengeance Day Ultimate Preview. In terms of Tuesday, It was the best in-ring episode of NXT in eons. The majority of matches were bangers. A couple others were solid. And the lone squash 
was for a debuting superstar, which again is exactly how you use a squash match. Extremely strong go-home show. It did not do a good rating. I think it was under 600,000 total viewers, but it was 20th on the night from a demo standpoint, which is actually solid and in many ways better than NXT performs, even when it gets more total viewers. So really interesting dynamics there with NXT. It's had some damn good ratings over the last couple of weeks. This one for a go-home show, I would call it disappointing. Perhaps there were other reasons that I'm not taking into consideration. Anyway, let's break down what happened on TV. The Creed brothers fought in Dushare. This opened the show with the heels dominating early. Brutus Creed went on a run with a hot tag, hitting a standing moonsault before Julius Creed tagged back in for a standing shooting star press. Julius then went to powerbomb Veer, but he was legitimately out of position. So Julius straight deadlifted him basically twice to execute the move, which seeing him do it was insanely impressive. Julius went for the finish when Jinder Mahal jumped on the ring apron, arguing with Ivy Nile, who also jumped on the ring apron. She ended up getting knocked off when Julius was running the ropes. She went flying. That distraction opened the door for a million-dollar arm and chokeslam with Indusher getting the win. You know, I have to say, given how long they have been in WWE and NXT, Indusher, to me, was just underwhelming for another time. The highlight here was undoubtedly Julius, who worked nearly the entire match, and despite that, saved that totally botched move with pure strength and will. I was legitimately worried the guy was going to pop a hernia or something, but, I mean, he accomplished it. It was true insanity. His ceiling is ridiculously high. The finish made complete sense, but the match, it just under-delivered, even though we did get what we wanted to see. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> But given how long this match has been promoted and the fact that they didn't follow it up by doing a rematch at Vengeance Day, you have to say it was disappointing. Credit to Ivy Nile for taking a huge bump off the apron. That looked gnarly. Uh, Indy Hartwell fought Zoe Stark. Indy backstage was telling the women about her Royal Rumble experience and blaming Zoe for injuring Nikita Lyons. She denied that claim and trashed Hartwell, saying she lasted far longer in the Rumble than she did. This was the most natural either of them has sounded speaking in a long time. Stark hit a great seated springing corkscrew, but got caught with a nice spine buster. Hartwell crossed herself and went for a springboard move of her own, but Stark scouted it by hitting the top rope and adding the Z360 for the victory. Zoe then beat on Indy after the bell with Sol Ruka making the save. She had Indy's back in the locker room earlier during the segment I mentioned. Strong match, necessary booking for Stark to get her win back. I certainly wonder whether this finally is the write-off for Hartwell going to the main roster. She's not in either title picture, and she got beat clean by someone who was staying on the brand. I could see her aligning with Candice LeRae and Mi Chin to kind of combat damage control on Raw. That would make a lot of sense if they do call her up. Isla Dawn got a video package saying spooky shit behind a fire. The camera then panned back and over to reveal Alba fire by her side with Dawn saying Alba just needed a gentle nudge to shed her emotions. Alba literally put out a fire with Isla saying her partner's initiation had begun. As I said last week, the main roster watch for Alba is now delayed at least until after WrestleMania. The only question is whether teaming with Isla is a move to like get close and destroy her, or if it's Alba actually aligning for real with them becoming a true tag team. If it's the latter, they would absolutely be the right team to take the titles off Caden Carter and Katana Chance at Stand and Deliver. This definitely worked aesthetically.
Now on the back end of this, Shawn Michaels held an NXT Vengeance Day conference call on Thursday before this podcast was taped, and I actually got the opportunity to ask him about Alba Fire, so listen to his response here. Hey, Sean, thanks for taking the time. Uh, one of the questions we get asked most frequently is when Alba Fire is either going to get elevated into a top spot or even move out of NXT. And well, obviously, the latter is not exactly in your hands. Given her immense level of talents and experience, how do you view her within the roster? So, look, I've, I've always, uh, you know, I, I worked with her in the, in the UK and uh, right. She's the longest reigning UK champion I think there is. Um, so obviously, I, I'm a fan. Um, but look, also, again, I, I'll say this. Um, at different times, we've been throwing some different curveballs here, and I have to try to do my best to get wood on as many of them <laughs> as I can. Um, and, you know, in her situation, uh, obviously, from coming over here from the UK, um, changed midway through, so we tried to adjust to that. And anytime you – make those adjustments, whether it's a name change or a character change. Uh, there's obviously a, I don't know, a rough period that you go through before it smooths out. Um, and I, I just feel like, again, I, to answer your question, I think the future is very bright for her. As you know, yeah, the, you know, call-ups and things like that, uh, you know, are not, you know, are not my call. And I will say this, look, and I understand, you know, that sometimes it gets, you know, fans can get impatient or, you know, a certain person's been there, they've been there so long, they ought to get called up. You know, time doesn't make someone always better. You know what I mean? Uh, doesn't make them, you know, a better worker sometimes. Uh, and that is not a prerequisite to, to being moved up. There has to be somebody that sees a spot, an opportunity, you know what I mean? A storyline. Um, and so look, hopefully those things do work out for her. And, and quite honestly, for me, uh, you know, quite a few others down here. Um, and look, I'm, uh, I've got, I'll say this, I got my fingers crossed that, you know, maybe around WrestleMania, we, you know, we'll be having some talks about something and some shakeups and some rosters. But as I say right now, I just do the job I'm told to do, man, and do the best job I can. Appreciate it. Bet. So that's a pretty interesting response from Sean, and it does make sense to some degree when they had to repackage her that she needed enough time in NXT to establish that and show people what that character is going to be on the main roster. But if you listen to the end of his comments, it kind of sounded like a WrestleMania or a post-WrestleMania call-up might be in the cards for Ms. Fire. So maybe what we're speculating here about this storyline is accurate. We'll find out in April. Uh, Tyler Bates saw Axiom backstage watching NXT UK footage of A-Kid with them kind of saying tongue-in-cheek, A-Kid was so talented and whatever happened to this guy. They talked about wrestling when Damon Kemp came up, saying Europeans are soft and A-Kid is hot garbage. So we got Bate and Axiom in a one-on-one -on -one match. There was a fun spot where Axiom put his hand on the referee's neck to aid a flip. Bate did a double helicopter into a slam, then ate a massive, really loud PK. They traded big strikes before Bate hit all of his signatures. Axiom countered Tyler Driver 97 twice into two different athletic pin attempts before Bate finally hit Tyler Driver 97 on a third attempt for the win. Kemp attacked Axiom after the bell, got chased away by Bate. This was a fantastic freaking match. I went four stars and an A minus. It was a sprint. Excellent from bell to bell. A great showing for both guys. I was on the edge of giving this 4.25 stars. I think you remove the commercial, 
Give him a couple extra minutes. It hits that A range, but A minus four, four stars. Fantastic. Must watch if you missed it. Uh, Drew Gulak fought Charlie Dempsey. Gulak took a deadlift German suplex and got caught in the crossface chicken wing when he noticed Hank Walker was standing close to the ring. So he flipped forward, sending Dempsey halfway through the ropes into Walker as means of assistance, and he followed with a high leverage roll up for the win. Walker got immediately busted open on the move, like legit. And it was one of the more inventive match finishes that I can remember recently. Quite a dastardly tactic and more proof of Gulak's, you know, win at all costs type of gimmick. I really enjoyed this. Uh, Mackenzie Mitchell showed footage from the NXT parking lot following Nikita Lyons' attack last week. An unidentified blonde woman drove away. Stark was shown walking away without a care. And then Wendy Chu was hanging out of a car window watching it all go down. There was no resolution here yet, but it was reminiscent of the Aleister Black angle from a few years ago. And you could tell they definitely planned this out rather than just decided to run a simple attack angle. It's always appreciated when you write someone off, but you have a much larger plan at play. My only question is, why are there not security cameras in the NXT parking lot in 2023? I mean, first of all, it's 2023. Second of all, this is a known hazard. We already talked that WWE should be getting sued over incidents in the NXT parking lot for not having security there. Well, you should at least have security cameras. Uh, Stevie Turner fought Danny Palmer. Turner hit a pump knee and spiked DDT plus a sit-down Uranaki. She looked good in the ring. It was a squash that it's kind of tough to take anything away from. Her presentation was okay. Not the best thing in the world so far. So that's what happened on NXT TV that did not directly have to do with Vengeance Day, which means it's now time for your NXT Vengeance Day Ultimate Preview. Now, this may not be a takeover card, but it's strong. And on top of that, it's an appropriate representation of this new NXT era. It has a mix of veteran talent, future main roster superstars, and developmental wrestlers. Now, this is a six-match card with all five titles on the line and a de facto number one contendership match that, as of right now, is not being called that. So let's start with the Women's Tag Team Championship, Caden Carter and Katana Chance against Kiana James and Fallon Henley. James told some guy, Zach, I love you on the phone when Fallon came by, upset that clearly she didn't care about Jensen because she was telling another guy, I love you. James said Henley had no idea what she was talking about when the Casey's approached, telling them to get their minds on their match and not each other because the titles aren't going anywhere. Henley then gave James a warning and walked off. Now, I presume this is a bit of a swerve and Zach is like Kiana's brother or something like that. Uh, this is one of those like old 90s, early 2000s sitcom tropes where like something happens that's really easy to explain away, but the character just doesn't do it. It's like all she had to say is it's, instead of instead of her saying it's none of your business or what are you talking about? All she had to say is Zach's my brother. You're crazy. It's over, right? There's no more issue. But hey, again, they're trying to tell a story, but it's not the best storyline. That's all I'm trying to say. Anyway, uh, look, there's no reason whatsoever that Carter and Chance should drop the titles to James and Henley. If you are going to have them lose, as I mentioned earlier, a team like Dawn and Fire would make a lot more sense or a much stronger, more cohesive team than James and Henley. The only reason to change the titles is if the Casey's are get getting called up, given they were not at the Royal Rumble, given WrestleMania is still you know, two months away for the most part. I have to believe if, if they were getting called up, it would be after WrestleMania and you change the titles at Stand and Deliver. So the Casey's win, that's the prediction. I do think this is going to be a good match. James and Henley, 
they have surprised me immensely with their progress in the ring over the last like month, two months, something like that. So putting them in the ring with two really athletic women like Carter and Chance, this is going to be a sneaky banger. I think this may be better than a lot of the matches that you think would be better than it on the show, if that makes sense. Meaning it's going to rank higher on best matches of the card when we talk about that on the instant analysis than you might think going in. That's really what I'm trying to say. Uh, The United States Championship will be defended. Wes Lee putting it on the line against Dijak. Wes Lee and Dijak did an in-ring confrontation where they set a grand total of nothing original. Wes Lee said Dijak would be fighting him and the fans who have his back, to which Dijak pointed out, well, good for you. They can't actually fight. No shit. Uh, Mr. Stone interrupted, insulted that Dijak said he was the biggest and baddest, overlooking, of course, Von Wagner. Wes Lee then instigated a fight between them, which was made official almost immediately. So Dijak took an exploder with his head bouncing off the canvas in a really scary spot. Wagner countered a discus lariat with a boot and a false finish. Then Dijak flipped out of a move and hit hard justice for a near fall. Wagner hit an avalanche double underhook slam, but Dijak countered his finisher into a chicken wing, moving into Feast Your Eyes for the win. For the third time, hard justice, not Feast Your Eyes, should be Dijak's finisher. It is far more impactful, and he never properly connects on Feast Your Eyes. Now, in the end, I talked about match quality on NXT. Oh, we got two big, meaty men bumping me tonight. We got two big, meaty men here. And this was legitimately a surprise. I kind of even want to call it a banger. It was way better than the Creed's against Indusher by direct comparison. Credit to Wagner for keeping up with Dijak. Plus, Wesley actually looked like a rare, smart babyface making the match happen in the first place. Later backstage, Stone had like a come-to-Jesus kind of meeting with Wagner, saying he's not going to ever go to the next level until he shows some personality and becomes more than a big, strong, growling wrestler. Then Stone did the Jerry Maguire, help me help you, shtick. No lies detected here, right? Whether Wagner actually has a personality to show remains to be seen. This makes me think they may do one of those where like you think he's going to show some other type of tough guy personality, and he does a comedy gimmick, and maybe they try something like that. And you know what? For Wagner, maybe a comedy type of gimmick would work for him. I have no idea where this is going, but Stone is right, you know, in kayfabe and in reality as well. He's saying what a lot of NXT fans and people who watch the product believe. I am kind of curious to see now how they book that forward on television as an actual storyline, angle, gimmick, what have you. Now, in terms of this match, you know, there's a legitimate opportunity for sure that Wesley gets his ass kicked by Dijak for the entire match, catches him in a pinning combination, and escapes with a win. But when you're bringing a main roster superstar back down to NXT, completely repackaging him and putting him in a title match for the North American title, I may have called it the United States Championship earlier. If I did, I apologized for that. Uh, So when you're putting him in a match like this for the North American title, rather than the big belt, that's generally a match that that individual, Dijak in this case, has to win. You know, I thought there was a good chance when Apollo Crews fought Braun Breaker, they might strap up Crews, call Breaker up, or use it similar to how they did with Dolph Ziggler, where... You know, Ziggler took the title from him, then Breaker won it back, something like that. 
And maybe that's what they ultimately do here. Maybe Dijak wins the title from Wesley and Wesley gets it back at Stand and Deliver. Certainly possible. But I think going into this match and looking at the show, projecting potential title changes, there's only two matches where I think the titles might actually change hands. This is one of them. And I'd put this as the second most likely match where the title changes. But nevertheless, my prediction is going to be Dijak leaving as the North American champion. Let's keep going with the tag team championship match. New Day against Gallus, pretty deadly, and one more team to be determined in a fatal four-way for the NXT tag team titles. So we had Chase U against Malik Blade and Nidra Sanofe and the Dyad in a triple threat on NXT to determine that fourth team. Now this unfortunately used the inferior triple threat rules with only two men legal at a time, though they did use that as a device for the match story, which I appreciated if you're gonna do it, even though it sucks, make it part of the match story where one guy refuses to tag another team or has no choice but to tag another team and that factors into the finish, etc. But again, when you have a triple threat tag team match, there should always be three men legal at the same time. Duke Hudson was off the apron in a key spot when Andre Chase needed a tag, so he ate a double team backstabber, then eventually found Hudson, who had a surprisingly strong hot tag. Blade caught him with a hurricanrana outside and hit a big frog splash with a nofe adding a flying elbow before they hit an assisted rolling neckbreaker for a broken fall false finish. Blade and Anofe hit a double tope con hero, but Fowler threw Blade into the steel steps. Chase blind tagged and based for a super duperplex before hitting the chase you stomps on Reed. Ava Rain distracted with Thea Hale taking her out at ringside. Chase avoided Reed in the corner with Hudson tagging in for the Fratliner and what I would call a surprise victory for Chase U. Great showing from all six guys, but Chase and Hudson were legitimately great as a team. They were the right winners to enhance the title match, and surely they're going to be the ones taking the fall at Vengeance Day. But this was a strong TV match. Now, when it comes to the tag team championships, there's two decisions really to make. First, does New Day drop the titles? There is something to be said for keeping them strapped up all the way through Stand and Deliver in April. It just feels like if you were going to do that, there would be no reason to put this many teams in contention for the title because theoretically you would want New Day to get past one of those teams at Vengeance Day and then fight another one, maybe Gallus, for example, at Stand and Deliver. As it's set up, they have a fall team in Chase U, which means New Day, of course, can lose the titles without taking the fall. But it also means that Gallus or Pretty Deadly can avoid taking the fall with a title change happening. And I do think we get something along the lines of Hudson leaves Chase hanging or there's a miscommunication or something like that happens where they end up being the fall guys. And my prediction in terms of who's going to emerge as champion is actually going to be Gallus. Pretty Deadly clearly wanted the titles back. They were kind of just a holdover champion, uh, given the way some things developed on the brand with people getting called up and moved around, injured, things like that. But Gallus coming back, having their visas, and now being full-time in NXT US, when you go into this match, they are by far the strongest team. And I'm of the belief that Pretty Deadly is going to get a call up to the main roster after WrestleMania. So if they're getting called up and New Day are already main roster performers, then really the only team left is Gallus, unless they pull a 
True shocker in Chase U wins the titles. I don't think that's happening. Gallus is my prediction to emerge as the new NXT tag team champions. And as I said, with the North American title match, that was my the second on my list of matches where I expected a title change. This one is first. I am very confident. New Day does not leave as champions. Uh, so let's get to the one non-title match on the card, Apollo Crews against Carmelo Hayes. Best two out of three falls. Cruz was standing on the roof of a building in Charlotte saying he visualized one pinfall and one submission getting him the win. The whole visualization deal, it is such a freaking eye roll. I'm sorry. I I love Apollo Crews. I want him to have immense amounts of success. The gimmick just isn't working. Backstage at NXT, Mello and Trick Williams cut a promo with Trick dropping one of the top lines of the year already. I'm shaking like booty meat on a Friday night. They work so damn well together, but there really wasn't much to this getting into the match. We've already got plenty of build over the ensuing weeks. So you go into the match and look, uh, Cruz just finished being number one contender for a breaker. He lost in that opportunity. Their feud was decent. Uh, the one that Braun Breaker is in now is his best feud since the Dolph Ziggler feud, basically an entire year ago. We'll obviously talk about that in a couple more matches in the main event part of this segment. But really, your next champion in NXT, your next king of NXT, the, your next face of that brand needs to be Carmelo Hayes. And him being able to go over Cruz two out of three falls not only establishes him as a legitimate threat, it puts him on a direct path for Breaker at Stand and Deliver, where I would expect, finally, a title change. So I've been saying it for weeks. I maintain Carmelo Hayes is the next number one contender, and he becomes that by defeating Apollo Crews here in the best two or three falls match. So let's move to the women's championship. Roxanne Perez defending in a triple threat against JC Jane and Gigi Dolan. There was a dual screen interview on NXT with Toxic Attraction scoffing at Roxy's goody two-shoes type of answers and saying she had no chance against them two-on-one. The heels were... I mean, let's just call it like it was presented. They were bitches to Perez. Toxic cut her off at every turn. They made fun of her and came off like straight bullies saying her 15 minutes of fame were over. That led Roxanne to get emotional and walk off with the viewer being led to believe that she was crying and emotional and she couldn't handle it because she's so young and everything the heels said was right. But after a couple of minutes, she wound up diving into both of the heels on their side of the camera in a blindside attack of course, showing her aggressive side. I gotta be honest, this was executed shockingly well. Perez showed great emotion. The heels maintained their quality mic work that we praised last week. It was a little bit more scripted than last week, but they did not sound anywhere near as robotic as they have previously. Usually when they sound the most robotic, it's when they're in the ring. Maybe they just have to get comfortable more speaking in that situation. This feud has been great for all three women. What we've gotten the last two weeks has really helped elevate the profiles of all three of them. I have no idea what kind of quality of match we're going to get. I've seen Toxic look really good in the ring. I've seen them look bad and clunky in the ring. We know Roxy's great. There will probably come a time at some point in this match, as there are in all triple threats that involve two partners, where JC and Gigi go at it. I'm kind of curious to see what that looks like. In the end, it was a quick change, of course, Roxy uh, winning the championship with WWE firing Mandy Rose. My guess is the title change was planned either for Vengeance Day or Stand and Deliver, 
But there's absolutely no reason to take the title off of her right now, especially to one half of a tag team, which is what would be happening in this situation. If you're going to take the title off Roxy, whether it's at Stand and Deliver now, down the line after that, whatever the case, it needs to be an Alba Fire, a Zoe Stark, uh, maybe even like a Tiffany Stratton or something, someone that can really benefit from it. JC and Gigi, just candidly, they're a really good women's tag team, and WWE badly needs women's tag teams. There's absolutely no reason to strap up either one of them individually. So Roxanne Perez emerges as the NXT Women's Champion. And lastly, the NXT Championship, Braun Breaker against Grayson Waller in a steel cage match. We got a new inside look special previewing the match. It was a far cry from the prime target uh, packages that we used to get with black and gold NXT. And really, this inside look didn't accomplish much. It remains a huge frustration of mine, and this is going over years, that NXT does not put its main eventers on the go-home show to their takeover or to their premium live event. AEW does this all the time as well. It is so immensely frustrating. I don't understand why they do it. If you're gonna do a prime target, fine. But if you're not, this little inside look shit, put them on the show. I wanna see them. I wanna see Breaker and Waller get into it. Anyway, this has been by far Breaker's best title feud since Dolph Ziggler 10 months ago that culminated, I believe, at Stand and Deliver. Waller has been a great foil for Breaker. It's getting under his skin. And there is some believability, unlike some of his prior opponents most recently, there's some believability that Waller, they might actually strap him up and let him emerge from this as the champion. The way you do that in a steel cage match is you get him a second, a heavy of some kind. I don't know who it would be, but that would be the way to accomplish it. Someone to negate Breaker and allow Waller to get the win. I just don't really see that happening. I've maintained probably for six months at this point that it would be Breaker and Mello at Stand and Deliver, and that is where Mello would finally ascend to the top spot in NXT, beat Breaker, and take the championship. I would hate to see a situation where like Waller wins here and then Mello beats Waller you know, two months from now. And I should also note, even though it's not necessarily part of the preview, even if and when Breaker loses his title, he should not get called up to the main roster. He's not main roster ready. He needs a more serious gimmick. This is very bubblegum, very 80s, 90s, what they're doing with Braun. He needs something deeper and more meaningful. And my hope would be that they're all smart enough to take the title off of him and use that to create a more balanced character rooted deeper in reality, less gimmicky than what we get right now with Braun Breaker. So I do have Breaker emerging from this as the NXT champion. Again, that would be three title defenses, the NXT title, the women's title, and the women's tag team title with two title changes that I'm predicting, at least the tag team championships, Gallus taking those, and Dijak taking the North American championship. Now, providing a pre-show grade for NXT Vengeance Day. I think the card is solid top to bottom. Legitimately, every single match on here, maybe with the exception of the women's title match, uh, perhaps, I think has the chance to be match of the night. But I also don't necessarily think with six matches on this card, usually they go two and a half hours, maybe close to three since this one will be in Charlotte on site. They've sold about 5,000, 6,000 tickets for it. Maybe they'll go the full three hours. 
I, I think some of these matches may not finish as definitively as we might want or expect from what we've gotten previously at a takeover. Now, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see what actually happens on the show. That's just my take going into it. So again, really strong card. A number of matches I'm legitimately excited to see, but my expectation grade going in is a B. And if we were to get a B show, knowing that Stand and Deliver is two months later, that would be perfectly fine. So that's my expectation grade. All of you, the Getting Overheads, our listeners here, you will have an opportunity to provide your pre-show expectation grade. We will post a poll one hour before NXT Vengeance Day on Saturday night. You will be able to vote in that, let your voice be heard. And then as soon as the show goes off the air, we will post another poll so you can provide your post-show grade and we will read that along with your pre-show grade on our NXT Vengeance Day instant analysis coming Saturday night as soon as that premium live event goes off the air. So if you happen to be a first-time listener to this podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button, get that Vengeance Day instant analysis, and then next week we'll be back with two more episodes covering WWE on Tuesday and NXT plus AEW on Thursday. On the way out of this podcast, allow me to remind you, as always, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop that five-star rating on Apple. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the podcast. And also do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast so you can participate in those polls. You can find out when our NXT Vengeance Day instant analysis drops and for news analysis highlights and much more. Follow us on Twitter once again at GettingOverCast. Thank you all once again for listening to this 401st edition of Getting Over. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. 